Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. guys can be seated. Thank you for being here, team. Thanks for leading us. Uh, that song we love uh, because it tells the story of God's redemptive plan to save humanity from start to finish, culminating in the person and work of Jesus. And so we gather every Sunday to remind ourselves that he alone is worthy of worship, that he's worthy of our fellowship, and that ultimately abundant life is found in him. That's what the Gospel of John tells us. And so uh, let me just quickly uh, affirm what David shared with us as well. Uh, We're so excited about this journey of grace uh, that is coming up kind of in September into October. Um, I just texted that word daily to 40777 and I got a message immediately back. You're in. You don't need to do anything else, which is good because I can follow about one direction and not more than that. So uh, very easy to do. I want to invite you to join us on not only that uh, prayer journey, but each Sunday as we kind of look further at what it means to be people of grace, people responding to the grace of God to us in Jesus. Well, several years ago, there was a sprinter, a Kenyan-born Israeli woman who was in a, a big race, and um, she was one of the front runners. She was one of the ones expected to place either first or second. And as she uh, came around the, what she believed to be final lap, she threw her arms up in victory only to quickly realize that it was not yet the final lap. And three sprinters ran past her. She never quite recovered. And in fact, in her celebration, she even crossed into another lane for just a moment and was disqualified completely from the race. Um, I want to show you a picture of what it looks like for that to happen. This is that woman immediately following the race, dejected, distraught, having forfeited and lost something that she thought was hers. The article that I found that talked about this particular race was titled, Stopping Too Soon. And it ended with these words, this was a race that will long be remembered, not because of how it was won, but rather how it was lost. So today I want to talk today about finishing well. I want to talk about what it looks like to not stop too soon. But, but to cross that finish line of faith in a way that we can hold our head up high. I believe every person wants to finish their race well. Uh, even people that wouldn't put that in Christian terms or faith terms, they, they want to succeed in their marriage. They want to succeed in the workplace. They, they want people to say good things about them at their funeral service, and it be true. As believers, we desire to finish the race of faith well, and that's the focus of Paul's instructions in the passage we're going to look at today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where I'm going to invite you to turn. That's a New Testament letter that Paul wrote to a church that he was the founding pastor of. And this is in a series that we're calling What Really Matters. Paul again and again in this letter to this church that he loved is reminding them that what matters is the gospel or good news of Jesus fleshing itself out in our lives and being shared with other people. And so in chapter 9, we're we're in chapter 10 today, but in chapter 9, if you were here last week or two weeks ago, you recall these words. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, 
but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Paul is calling for the church, and we also, being a church, are being called to have a singular focus at finishing the race that God has called us to run. So this metaphor remains in Paul's mind as we move into chapter 10, because I don't know if you know this or not, the writers of the Bible didn't write with their feather quill pens or whatever it was, chapter 10, verse 1. That's not what they did. This was simply a letter that people later organized into chapters and verses for us. But this metaphor of finishing a race, this is squarely what's in Paul's mind as he writes these words, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate and drank the same spiritual food. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now what Paul is referring to is a group of people that came long before the Corinthian church, long before there was a Horizon West church, in what's called the Old Testament, first 39 books of the Bible. Those stories detail the lives of faith of people who had not yet encountered Jesus. He wasn't on the scene yet, at least not in flesh and bone. But these are people that were followers after Yahweh God. They had left their captivity in Egypt and were on their way to something the Bible calls the land of promise or the promised land. And Paul's going to highlight two scenes in that story of their journey of faith that he wants to hold up as examples for us who follow Jesus. The first is their passing through the Red Sea on dry ground. If you've ever seen one of the, I think there are three blockbuster Hollywood movies who have shown this very scene. And it's the people of God with the Egyptian army on their back. God parts the waters of the sea and they walk through. And Paul says, in the sea they were baptized. Now theirs was a dry baptism, otherwise it would have gotten really bad. But, but Paul's using language that the Christians, followers of Jesus, we are going to go, oh, baptized. I was baptized. He says, yeah, so were they. And then he says, and, and they also ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. He's highlighting two miraculous events, one in which God provided something called manna and again, quail from heaven that would just fall at the feet of the people and they would eat and in one case there was water that came from a rock so that they would not be thirsty as they wandered through a desert he says they ate and drank the same spiritual substance and I think what Paul's doing here is he's drawing a corollary to communion or the Lord's Supper go well I've broken the bread and I've drank from the cup so so Paul what are you saying and he's saying what I'm saying is Even though these people also participated in these spiritual practices, they did not make it to the land of promise. Listen to what he says in verse 6. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil the way that they did. Our tendency for those who have been around churches or been around the Bible for a while, we have this tendency to accentuate the differences between the Old Testament and the new. 
Old Testament deals with life of faith before Jesus arrived in the Gospel of Matthew. New Testament deals with the life of Jesus and everything that came after. And you might hear people talk in such a way, they'll say, well, the Old Testament's all about law and the New Testament's all about grace. Or or the Old Testament is all about God being, you know, angry and judgmental and wrathful and the New Testament is all, all about mercy and the cross. And while there are distinct differences in those two covenants, Paul wants to pause for a minute and invite us to consider the similarities. There is only one God. He has only one character. And there is only one redemptive story from Genesis through Revelation. And Paul's going to wake us up to say, consider what you can learn from those who practiced faith long before you did. Paul's point in all of this is pretty clear. It is possible to participate in the life of God and in a community of faith and yet not finish our race well. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be true of me. Now, one of the questions that came to my mind, and oftentimes if I'm preparing a message and a a question just blaring in my mind, I think maybe there's somebody else that's also going to ask the same question. So let me seek to go there. The question that might come to our mind is, does this passage and does the Bible teach that a person can lose their salvation? Right? Paul's saying, hey, these people were people of faith. They were baptized. They did communion, but they didn't make it to the promised land. And so all of a sudden there's this sense of going, man, is my salvation this kind of like slippery, you know, bar of soap that I got to hold on to? And what is Paul doing here? So we're going to seek to answer that question, can a person lose their salvation? But I want to first lean into the tension of what Paul is saying. I don't want to dismiss it too quickly or easily and kind of let, let the, you know, the breath in our lungs just exhale go, okay, I don't need to pay attention. No, you need to pay attention. This is not an isolated passage where Paul's just like, hey, I need to warn you. There are many like this in the New Testament, not just the Old. Consider Hebrews chapter 6. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then they fall away to restore them again to repentance because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and they are holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk in the rain that often falls on it and then produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, that land receives God's blessing. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, And its end is to be burned. Now there's your word of encouragement for today, church. (laughs) Right? Like, Paul's not going, hey, here's here's 30 promises to, to read this month to just, you know, go, okay, I'm good. No, Paul's going, hey, pay attention. Be alert. Wake up. And so, so, so we got to grapple with this one side of the tension where this idea that, that you'll hear people say, once saved, always saved, and it turns into, well, I prayed a prayer when I was 13 and I've lived like the devil for the last 50 years, but I'm good. I think scripture is going to go, don't be too sure. Be careful. There are plenty of passages that warn us not to take our salvation lightly. The, the other thing I think Paul's driving at here is this idea that, again, appears throughout the New Testament, that we are participants in our salvation. Now, we don't add to our salvation, nor do we earn it or perform for it. But when the mercy of God comes to us, we have a response. We have a responsibility. 
Consider Philippians chapter 2 where Paul writes to another church and says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Another way to say that is with reverence. Don't take it lightly. Don't treat it like something you really didn't, you know, you know I don't have to do anything, whew, sweat off my brow, like I can just put it on cruise control from here on out. The New Testament nowhere encourages that approach to faith. Let me say it another way. No one should feel secure in their sin, who is, or, or rather in their salvation, who is comfortable in their sin. No one should feel secure in their salvation while they are comfortable in their sin. Now notice I didn't say who sins, because by that metric, we would all be disqualified. But it is our response to sin largely that reveals to us where our heart is and where the work of God is in our life. So when I sin, I'm going to ask myself this question, am I indifferent to this? Am I unmoved by it? Doesn't even phase me. I can just sin, 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 go on with life, no issue. There's reason to be concerned. Or maybe I've excused what I'm doing, or, or now I deny that it's even sin. Well, I've got people that tell me I can get it, you know, I might have reason to be concerned. But if, in contrast to those responses to sin, when I sin, the response is to grieve it, to seek to confess it, to repent of it. It may not happen overnight, but if there is no response to God when I sin, there's cause for concern. When I was a teenager, I, I liked to sleep in. I know that probably surprises people who have teenagers, but when my mom would finally seek to wake me up at 9 or 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, I didn't always wake up right away. Didn't always immediately come to my senses, right? Sometimes we walk in sin and somebody's trying to get us out of it and we're like, eh, I don't really, does that mean we're unsaved? No, but it could mean that we're asleep. <laughs> could mean we need to wake up. But if attempt after attempt after attempt is futile, that person may not be sleeping, they may be dead. Do you understand? So, so Paul's going to call us, the scripture is going to call us to examine ourselves and go, how do you respond? If the Holy Spirit's living in you, there should be some kind of a, a sensitivity, a conviction to when I am living in sin. So this passage, uh, this assumes that Paul is writing to people who care about these kind of issues. These are people that have said, yes, I, I would like to finish my race well. Show me how to do it. And so in the verses that we're going to look at next, Paul's going to offer to us three areas of life that are going to become essential that we guard in order that we finish our race well. Here's the first one. We need to guard our heart. Look at chapter 10 again, beginning at verse 7. He writes, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. When I was growing up, I had the fortune of being the middle of seven children. Um, and so part of the reason I'm skinny is I never got the second peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but that's another issue. <laughs> One of the blessings of that is I had three older siblings, a sister and two brothers. And how many of you have an older sibling or had an older sibling growing up? You, you know, one of the great advantages is you can look at how poorly they do life and just do the opposite, right? Like, it's like, man, 
when my sister did this, it went there, and my brothers said that, and that, you know, it's like, I became that kind of compliant kid who was like, I'm going to figure out how to never get in trouble. Now, that's not entirely healthy. I'm just telling you where I'm coming from. It's possible to look at somebody else's life and go, oh, that's not something I want to reproduce. So oftentimes in the scriptures, we see negative examples. We we see kings who defied God. We see prophets who turned away from the faith. And Paul's going to make the point here, there's a reason these things were written down. It's written down so that you have an older brother or sister spiritually that you can look at and learn from. One of the translations of scripture takes this passage, this verse 6, and where it says that we might not desire evil, it translates that we might not crave evil the way that they did. Because see, craving is a little bit of a sharper or stronger word than desire, right? I I pretty much could always desire, you know, steak burrito with extra guac from Chipotle. That that I have no problem with. But I don't always crave it. Same with Chick-fil-A. When that craving, I can pass Chick-fil-A, and we do, I mean, they're everywhere, right? You pass them multiple times in a day. It's all good. I've got a meeting. I can do whatever. But when I crave a number one with pepper jack cheese and pickles and waffle fries with six Chick-fil-A sauces and an ice-cold Coke, when I crave it, it's harder to drive by it. When I crave it, I find myself getting in line and seeing how many dollars I got in my pocket and how many rewards I can get on my phone and I'm, I'm going to go after what I crave. Paul says, be careful that you don't crave evil. Be careful that you don't cultivate a heart that craves something other than God in the place of God. The craving for something other than God to satisfy us is what the Bible calls idolatry. It is, it is less about something we craft with our hands and more about something we crave in our heart. See, if it was as simple as just saying, well, I don't have any idols in my house. I don't bow down to statues of wood and stone with my family. By that metric, most if not all of us could breathe a sigh of relief. Paul's not talking to us. We're not idolaters. But if it's an issue of craving of the heart, oof, I may be guilty there. Tim Keller says, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to our happiness, meaning in life, or identity, then it is an idol. Doesn't matter what you got in your house, doesn't matter if you've got scripture verses on the wall, it's about what is manufactured in your heart. So let me ask you this, is finding a husband or a wife, is that the way you're going to pursue happiness? Because if that is the metric by which you are happy or unhappy, that could become an idol in your life. Your kid's academic or athletic success could be an idol because it's the thing you find your identity in. Man, my son is top of his class. My daughter is best athlete on the team. Or maybe the obsession with working more and earning more to have more, and that's where you find your meaning in life. All of a sudden, things aren't going well in work, and I've got no purpose to live. If that's the case, that could be an idol in your life and in your heart. And I want to share with you an important spiritual principle that you need to understand. Idols of stone and clay and wood can sit neatly on a shelf and disrupt nothing. But idols of the heart don't sit quietly on the shelf of our heart. Instead, they put down roots, take up residence, and when you go, oh, I want to get rid of this idol, you might find it's just not quite that easy. You might find that the thing is 
deeply rooted into your heart and you're going to need help to get it out. See, this is why we are so passionate about things like small groups where people lock arms with each other and open up to each other in such a way that they can help each other navigate the dangers and pitfalls of life that they can't do on their own. It's, it's why we're passionate about Celebrate Recovery where every Monday evening people gather to identify the idols in their life, the things that have become strongholds in their heart that they can't dislodge on their own. Listen, you're not a weak Christian if you can't do it alone. You're a Christian. You were never intended to do it alone. And so if you find that that idol has become a stronghold, it's put down roots in your heart, what you need to do is, yes, pray, Yes, seek deliverance from the Lord, but you may very well also need to put people in your life to whom you can confess and can hold you accountable. Not in a beating you over the head with the Bible kind of way. I'm talking about in relationship. Somebody that knows you well enough to know, hey, something doesn't seem quite right. I'm passionate about this not just because I think it's a biblical principle, but because that's largely the way God uprooted idols in my heart can't tell you the number of times I said, God, I'll never do it again. I'm so sorry. I'm really serious this time. I'm committed this time. I'm going to write it in my journal and date it. This is the day, God. And then weeks or days or hours later, that idol's still there. It's manifesting again. I needed people in my life who I could say, I can't do this alone. I need help. So we're passionate about those things. The reality is most Christian teaching in most churches deal primarily with the symptoms and not the source. The symptoms are, are, they need to be dealt with. Paul's going to get to that in a minute. But the most important thing is the source of that idol factory. That is your heart. This is why Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do, everything you say flows out of your heart. So guard your heart. Secondly, guard your body. Guard your body. Verse 8, Paul identifies sexual immorality as one of the outer workings that proceed from a heart that is caught up in idolatry. Now, before I dive into this issue, does anyone want to make the argument that sexual immorality is not a problem in today's world? Okay, so we're all on the same page here. So this matters to us. It was an issue then, it's an issue now, it needs to be talked about. Let, let me connect this with Paul's previous point. Guard your heart and then also guard your body. Jesus, teaching in Matthew chapter 5, was challenging the religious ideas of the day that said, as long as I didn't do anything, I'm good with God. As long as I just thought about it, fantasized about it, craved it, nurtured it in my heart and mind... Uh, uh, bitterness, uh, lust, greed. As long as I don't actually do anything, I'm good. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Which is really unfortunate because by that metric, none of us can stand. By, By the metric, and this is one example, he says the same thing about hatred and murder. He says the same thing about uh, an oath and and fulfillment. Like the principle applies beyond sexual immorality, but Paul's going to highlight that as one of the primary places where people get off course. One of the primary places where we can get distracted and end up not finishing our race well. Let me draw a couple observations from what Jesus says about lust and adultery. He says it also again about anger and murder. 
First, it's the principle of equivalence. What, what, what Jesus is striking at is, you think you're better just because lust has filled your heart and your mind and your desires than somebody who's in an adulterous relationship. But the reality is, you're both filled with sin. You're, you're both falling short of God's plan. It's the principle of equivalence. But there's another principle I believe that Jesus is striking at, which I would call the principle of inevitability. If lust, if anger, if greed so fills my heart and mind that it has control over me, it's only a matter of time before I act on it. Unless there is radical repentance, the desires and cravings of the heart will manifest in my body. I will end up going after the thing that I desire to have. So important that you understand the first and most important issue to address is the cravings of your heart, what the Bible calls idolatry. But at the same time, we will always have the impulse to sin as long as we're in these bodies. You will never get to a place where you go, man, I haven't desired anything that's short of God in 10 years. I've, I've reached perfection. You're always going to have the impulse. And so Paul's going to say, look, the heart needs renovation. The heart needs to change. But you also need to cultivate the discipline of self-control. You need to have something and some kind of a filter that when that desire manifests itself, and it will, there's a, there's a stopping point. You, you've drawn a boundary there. You're choosing not to use your body to fulfill that desire. Let me say it this way. You may not be able to prevent every lustful thought, but you can avoid going to the bar for drinks with an attractive coworker at the hotel. Like, you can do that. You may have a craving or a desire, but you can discipline your body to say, we're not going there. You may not be able to eradicate every impulse toward greed and deception, but you can make the choice, we're not cheating on our taxes. We're reporting what it is, how it is, and we're doing this the right way. And you may find something very interesting begins to take place. You may find that as you exercise discipline over your body, you form a habit that begins to change your heart. So if when the impulse to stop at Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A shouldn't be a negative example, it's a Christian thing, but let's just, let's just go there. Let's use Chipotle. When the impulse to stop at Chipotle comes over me, and I go, you know what, I, I don't need to spend the money because I've got something at the house and, and we're just not going to do that. And then the next day, that impulse comes back and I say, you know what, I'm headed to a meeting, I would be late if I stopped, so I'm not going to do that. And the next day, I just go, you know what, I didn't need it the last two days, I don't... Over time, what happens is all of a sudden I can pass that restaurant and I don't crave it anymore. And what I've done is I've reversed the current. Let me show you a picture. My wife and I were in Chicago uh, this past weekend. We took an architect boat tour. How many of you love the city of Chicago? This is so sad. It is a great city and you need to go and enjoy it. It's about the same in the first service. Um, we, Chicago is cool. It's like New York City in the Midwest. It's a perfect blend of those you know, two kind of ideas. And so we did everything we possibly could do in a 72-hour span. We went to Wrigley. We got a Chicago dog. We got deep dish pizza. We saw a concert at the House of Blues. And we did everything you could possibly think to do. And one of the things on our list, one of the main priorities on our list, was to do an architect boat tour down Chicago River. Man, seeing the skyscrapers kind of from the other side, hearing the stories about why in this time period they built like this, but the building next to it was built, and, and we just reveled in that. 
And one of the things that was revealed on that boat tour, the guide told us, did you know that the Chicago River is the only river in the world that flows backward? Like, what do you mean? Well, in the late 1800s, residents of Chicago were taking their trash and doing what? Dumping it in the river. And it was flowing up to Lake Michigan, and the government wasn't happy about it. And they said, you can no longer let your trash flow to Lake Michigan. So rather than stopping to dump their trash in the river, they took up the largest aquatic engineering project in the history of the world and reversed the current so that that trash would go to St. Louis and not to Michigan. And it still does to this day. Hopefully people aren't still dumping their trash, but, but that river still goes the other way. And I share that with you to say this. If you wake up every morning and go, man, I just don't know how to break this desire in my heart. I don't know how to stop the craving. Try reversing the current. Try disciplining your body to say, we're just not going to do that. And you might find that rather than being led by your heart to act, your actions may begin to change your heart and take leadership of it. This is why it is so important that we guard our body. That we be careful about what we look at, what we engage in, who we spend time around in some circumstances. We need to guard those things. Third and finally, Paul's going to encourage us to guard our tongue. There's a, there's a kind of a thing that Paul does here that's going to need some context. He says that the Israelites, the, the older brothers and sisters of the faith, they put Christ to the test, he says, and they grumbled. These are both ways of describing this one idea that the Israelites use their tongue for evil and not for good. And so what, what Paul calls to, this is in Numbers chapter 21, we're not going to take the time to go there, but really quickly what happens is that the people of Israel yet again begin complaining that they don't have what they need, complaining about Moses' leadership and about God's provision. And God's like, had it up to here. And all of a sudden, serpents start coming out of the, you know, nowhere and start biting people. So they're scrambling. They're like, what do we do? And God tells Moses to build a bronze serpent and make it high where everybody in Israel can see it. And when those who were snake bitten look at the bronze serpent, they will immediately be healed. Now, this is a quick aside, but I love that the moment that judgment came, there was a way of salvation. This is always God's way. This is always God's way. Judgment is never meant as punitive. It's never meant to destroy. It's always meant to get people to turn in the direction that is life. And this is exactly the context in which Jesus, talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, says that every, just as everyone who looked at the serpent was saved, so everyone who looks to the Son of Man will be saved. You know what his next words are? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So this context, Paul's going to draw from again to say there is a corollary here that when the people spoke death into the world, death came upon them. See, oftentimes what we do is we kind of separate out sins of speech and we go, well, that's not nearly as important. Like, obviously I can't beat somebody up, but I can run them down in front of other people. Right? Like, I, I can't, you know, take out a front page ad in the New York Times to, to defame them, but I can tell everybody I know what a terrible person they are. And we use our tongue for evil. And did you know that the Bible actually takes sins of the speech very, very seriously? Let me give you a quick, this is not exhaustive, a quick example of how seriously Scripture takes this issue. 
Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, this is Jesus speaking. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. And finally, James chapter 3, verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. You think scripture takes this issue seriously? Absolutely it does. The power of the tongue is the very power of life and death. And in the exact same way that we can reverse the current by using our body to honor the Lord, to change our heart, the same thing is true and maybe even more so when it comes to our speech. Because see, it's, it's really hard to retain bitterness and unforgiveness towards somebody that I'm regularly praying for and naming before God. It's really hard to wallow in insecurity and self-loathing and hatred when I'm looking at the promises of God that tell me I'm his child, that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that he has lavished his love on me when I'm speaking that. That's truth. It's hard to remain critical, judgmental, negative spirit, unthankful. We're singing songs of worship over and over. We're singing songs of praise when we're using our tongue to affirm what is right and what is true. And what can begin to happen is that our tongue can reverse the current and begin to again change our heart. The heart is the most important part of all this, but sometimes it needs some help to get where it needs to go. Let me close in these last few minutes by returning to the question that I asked uh, earlier and didn't fully flesh out. The question was, does this passage teach and does the Bible affirm that a person can lose their salvation? Let me make a couple of quick observations and then show you some verses that kind of are on the other side of that tension from what we read earlier. Two observations of this. First, as Paul uses the Israelites as an example of not finishing well, you might notice that their consequence was natural and physical, not necessarily spiritual. Paul doesn't say, and by the way, all those people are in hell. He says they died in the wilderness. And I don't know about you, but I want to do more than just not go to hell. I want to finish my race well. I I want my life to have God's favor and God's blessing. And however you understand this passage, we should all be clear on the fact that these people, these Old Testament folks, they missed out on God's best because they weren't faithful to finish their race. And then secondly, the intent of the passage, as with pretty much everywhere that Paul is talking to the people of Corinth, is less about some future judgment that may come upon them, and it's more about how to live the life of faith well here and now. Saying, look, you don't, you don't want to fall in the, in, in the wilderness. You, you, you don't want to get to the end. You don't want to stop too soon. You want to finish. And the way that you finish, the way that you flesh out the faith that is yours is by doing these three things, by guarding your heart, by guarding your body, and guarding your tongue. Those issues will largely determine how you finish the race of faith. Now, let me provide some verses on the other side, verses that affirm our security in Christ. You remember Hebrews chapter 6, that was the really positive, encouraging, you know, punch of, hey, if people fall away, they can't be brought back. And it's like this, what, what's going on here? Can I share with you that the very next verse, Hebrews 6, 9 says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, your case, follower of Jesus, we are sure of better things. 
things that belong to salvation. So Paul's not wringing his hands going, man, there's sin in the camp. These people are all going, he's going, no, 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 there's sin, but we're going to deal with it because I know who your confidence is. I know who you've put your trust in. I'm sure of salvation in your case. And then Philippians 2 verse 13, on the heels of work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're participating. We're not earning it. We're not striving for it. But from a place of the salvation that God has granted, we're participating in fleshing out what it looks like to finish our race well. One more verse, and then we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 10 and close out. John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, Jesus again rebuking the religious leaders says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Can we lose our salvation? Well, we know we need to be watchful, we need to be careful, but I would add to that we can also be confident. Because if you didn't earn your salvation, if you didn't work your way for it, it's not going to slip through your fingers. It's not something fragile. You're not walking on a tightrope. Oh, did I, did I mess up today? Your salvation is not that insecure. It is Christ who earned it. And when Jesus was on a cross, remember he said, it is finished. Jesus ran the race in our place. And so Paul is going to close out chapter 10 with two verses that speak to these two tensions. And some of you may need to really hear one, and some may really need to hear the other. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. This is for the person that thinks, well, I was saved a long time ago, and I'm just kind of stumbling and meandering my way toward this place called heaven one day that I get to go to. Paul says, man, if you think that's you, be careful. Be careful, stand firm. Be careful that you don't fall like these other ones did. And for those of you that are walking that tightrope, thinking that you've got to prove yourself every day that you really are a Christian who's worthy, listen to what Paul says, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he, God, will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I want to encourage you, if you do this in your Bible or on your notes on your phone, I want you to, to underline, to highlight, to star, and to circle these words. God is faithful. See, the basis of our salvation is not what we have done for him, but what he has done for us. And while it is right to examine ourselves and say, am I really in Christ? Have I really trusted him with salvation? Once you have done that, you can be confident that the one who began the work in you will carry it on to completion. God is faithful. And so I'm going to invite you to do this just right where you're at. If you would close your eyes and get in kind of a, a posture of prayer, I want to invite you to respond to the message that we've heard today. God is faithful. What does that mean for you? And would you just right there in your own seat and quietly, you don't have to say it out loud, but quietly would you answer this, because God is faithful, I will, what is that for you? Because God is faithful, I will. Finish that sentence in your own heart. And then would you turn that into a prayer 
to God. God, because you are faithful, I will, by your grace, in Jesus' name. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that every person who has formulated in their own heart and mind a a prayer of of God, my desire is to do this. My, My desire is to surrender the outcome of my children's lives. My desire is to to lay those sins and temptations at your feet. My desire is to trust you with my finances and with my generosity. God, whatever that is, because you are faithful, would you show yourself faithful to these who are coming for your grace in their time of need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.